Welcome to episode 70 of the Various and Sundry podcast. I am your host, Matt Harmon, joined live in our virtual studio by my good friend, my colleague, my co-host, and the man who knows every craft brewery in the greater Fort Wayne metropolitan area, John Scott Sloat. Doc, what's going on? Not much, not much. We are uh, recording on a Friday afternoon, recording April 30th, which is a little bit of a departure for us, John, right? Yeah, it feels a little weird. Normally, uh, we're in the studio Monday morning. Yes, yes, but we have made a special exception for uh, our guest who we will introduce here in just a moment. But first, if you'd like to connect with us on the show, you can find us on Twitter at Pod. You can email the show various and sundry podcast at gmail.com we have a facebook page that you can find us various and sundry podcast and we have a youtube channel that you can connect with us there as well and we would love for you to go on to whatever app you use to access the podcast and leave us a glowing review and five star rating only please and that brings us to our guest for today we have the privilege of being joined by Barnabas Piper. And Barnabas uh, comes to us, Barnabas and I, I think it's safe to say we are acquaintances in part through the conference circuit. Uh, you may know him as a, the author of four books, which we will talk about uh, today. He worked for, I think, close to 15 years in the publishing industry with various publishers. He is the co-host of the Happy Rant podcast. He is a, the director of community at Emmanuel Nashville Church. He's married to his wife, Lauren, and has two daughters. And he is also a Minnesota sports fan. So Barnabas, welcome to the program today. Glad to be on with you, and I appreciate uh, you flexing your recording schedule. Friday afternoon's a better time to record than Monday morning. Very few good things happen on Monday morning. So I feel like just as a general rule, your podcast, like it might just be more joyful if it might be. It wasn't on Mondays. I mean, I can't say that for sure. Maybe you're the exception to the rule, but just just a guess. We will see. We will see. So maybe today will be the test episode for that. So <laughs> Um, well, we're going to do, uh, in, in one sense, we're going to do our normal thing, and we've invited Barnabas to kind of join us as one of our uh, program hosts today, and we will spend significant time uh, asking Barnabas questions about his, uh, about his life experience, his ministry experience, his writing, uh, and those sorts of things, but we are going to move right into our sports segment, and as we are at the end of April... We've got really two main things going on. We've got the approach to the NBA playoffs and the start of the Major League Baseball season. So let's start NBA playoffs. And uh, Barnabas, we'll actually start with you. Um, you're a Minnesota Timberwolves fan, correct? That's correct, which means I'm really unfamiliar with this thing <laughs> called the NBA playoffs <laughs> since, since Kevin Garnett uh, yes. departed for Boston. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, though, you know, John is a Knicks fan. And so he has your former coach, uh, Tom Thibodeau, uh, running the show there. Uh, were you glad to see Thibodeau, uh, move along from, from Minnesota? I was because it wasn't working, but not because I think he's a bad coach. I, I think, uh, yeah, I think, I think Tibbs is a perfect for the Eastern conference. 
which there's you can get further in the Eastern Conference by just being a grinder. And he if, is nothing if not a grinder. And uh, and also he's perfect for getting teams to the playoffs. You know, just all effort, run your stars out there 40 minutes a night. And, you know, he, he runs a good system. He did the same thing with the Timberwolves, came in, got them to the playoffs. Everything fell apart because, you know, Jimmy Butler's crazy and uh, so is Tibbs. And uh, then they all started fighting. But I was so I was glad to see him go. But things haven't been better since he left. So maybe I was wrong. Yeah, what what is the future there for for Minnesota? Do you have any sense of what they're <sighs> trying to do? I mean, you've got D'Angelo Russell, you've got Big Cat. Um, yeah. is, are you at a point where you're like, we just need to tear the whole thing down and start over, or, or do you think you can use any of the pieces? Well, I don't know what there is to tear down at this point. You know, when you've been in a rebuild for like 15 years, at, at some point you're just like shuffling around loose lumber and not actually building anything. And I, <laughs> I kind of feel like that's where they've been. So I think. I think they have the pieces in place to give it a go with what they've got. So they have, you know, they had, they drafted Anthony Edwards, number one overall during the second half of the season. He's looked really good. I mean, for, for an 18 year old, yeah. uh, they have probably the best offensive big man. Uh, certainly the best shooter since Dirk in cat. And, and then they've got Russell who is, you know, he's a good scorer, decent distributor. So there's pieces there to be a competitive team. Mm-hmm. The question is, can their new coach, uh, Chris Finch, get get any sort of a defensive effort out of them to move them? Like if they moved into the middle of the pack defensively, I think they're about a, they have the potential to be a 500 team. But they've been bottom three in the league defensively for like five straight years. Wow. So it's, yeah, just, I mean, the kind of thing where, where teams just, I mean, it's a layup line. And then when it's not a layup line, it's just a shooting drill. So, uh, yeah, I think the pieces are there if he can get any sort of defensive system and effort out of them. Um, but, you know, that's sort of been the Timberwolves MO for forever is like, well, we've got some pieces. We had Kevin Love. We had, you know, whoever. It's just been a series of these sort of not quite superstars. So uh, I have I wouldn't call myself optimistic. I'd call myself kind of could be worse i think that's 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 probably the tone it could be worse gotcha all right so john tell us about your beloved knicks let me tell you if if there's hope for the knicks i think there's got to be hope for the timberwolves i don't know anything about the timberwolves uh owner uh but the knicks have by far the worst owner in the league and somehow in a in a summer when we were supposed to get uh, more players. We, we ended up with a decent roster. Um, we ended up with, like you said, effort uh, from our team, only allowing 104 points a game, which is all of a sudden is pretty good in the NBA. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, we're fourth in the East. We've won uh, nine of our last 10. We lost, goodness, uh, Doc, when we recorded on Monday, we were nine straight at the time and we lost to, uh, we lost to the Phoenix Suns who are second in the West and, uh, have beaten, I think, Chicago this week. So things are going well. I mean, we're and, and somehow playoffs. Julius Randle is just a revelation. Like he's always been sort of yeah. a points, rebounds, bad team guy, and all of a sudden he's you know marginal MVP candidate. I'm not sure where that came from, but it's been crazy to watch. And and I think RJ Barrett's developed a little bit as well. He's come uh-huh. along quite a bit as well. And then uh, Emmanuel Quickly from uh, from Kentucky uh, has been really really good. So yeah, 
Okay, so Barnabas, we need to bring a little bit of reality to, to John here. What what do you think the <laughs> Knicks, Knicks uh, chances are in the playoffs? They're currently sitting in the four spot in the East behind uh, Brooklyn, Philly, and Milwaukee. Well, I don't think they're in the same class as any of those teams. I'm guessing John doesn't think they're in the same class as any of those teams either. <laughs> um, I think they're probably, you know, I, I wouldn't put, I think Miami's probably better than they are as well. Um, although they they've just been sort of like, cycling through injured players all year um so they are tibbs is doing exactly what he does best Mm -hmm. he has gotten 99 out of 100 percent of what that team can offer so what's going to happen is they're going to get to the playoffs and the nets are going to decide all their guys are healthy and they're going to drop 140 points a game on the knicks or something like that just because they're they're two different talent classes but if i was a knicks fan i'd be so excited because they're a real basketball team who's playing competitively. The young guys who have not looked good for several straight years are doing professional basketball things. And, uh, you know, I've never watched a game at Madison Square Garden, but by all accounts, I mean, it's the, it's the Fenway Park or the Wrigley Field mm-hmm. or whatever, like sort of this iconic place. And I have to imagine when the Knicks are competitive, that place is, is an absolute blast to watch a game. Oh, wait, nobody's watching games anywhere right now. But maybe come playoff time. <laughs> Yes. So I, I've been to one game at Madison Square Garden um, and it was I, I was visiting New York, I was visiting a friend and, and just bought a ticket on a whim and went. And it was during uh, Jeremy Lin's rise. Uh, and that <laughs> was insane uh, to be in the building while he was, uh, yeah. while he was uh, scoring so many points alongside Mello and, and all those guys. Steve Novak was there at the time. It, it was a good time. <laughs> Indeed. Well, let's let's move on to uh, to Major League Baseball. Um, Barnabas, tell us about your twins. I haven't checked the standings because I'm not a huge baseball guy. I only follow okay. it very loosely. But uh, how are the twins doing this this uh, this season so far? Disappointing so far. They so they're favored by most by most projections to win their division. White the White Sox were supposed to be good, and the Twins are supposed to win the division. Um, and other than a, like two players on the team, almost everybody's performed under expectations. So they've uh, they're just sort of muddling along right now. They're at the, they're at a place where if they get on a hot streak, they'll be right back in it. But they just haven't looked good. They're not hitting that well. They're not pitching that well. They're not fielding that well. And when you add up those three things, you're not a very good baseball team. So they uh, yeah, they had a really big win earlier this week. Just hit six homers in a game, and hopefully that's the uh, kind of the a turning point for them. That'd be fun to see, but kind of week so far yeah and and you're down in the in the nashville area so there's no professional baseball close by no no major league baseball I assume right there's yeah probably we've got minor, minor league. league yeah yeah so i i just shell out the money every year for the mlb streaming package which actually works great for me because you can only watch games out of the local network well i live way out of the twins <laughs> local network so i get to watch almost all their games yeah. I, uh, I do the same thing for the Mets and uh, believe it or not, Indiana's well outside the New York uh, viewing area. So, <laughs> which is crazy. Cause I think New York thinks that the viewing area is everywhere. Like everybody loves New York, right? We, we are the center of the universe. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's move on to the NFL draft and, uh, and John, we'll start with you since your beloved jets. Oh my goodness. Had the second pick in the NFL draft. Man, and that's tell- almost as sad as being called a Timberwolves fan. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So John, tell us, um, 
what your beloved Jets did with that second pick. So first, my, my dad's on business here uh, in Fort Wayne um, this week. So we were able to watch the draft together last night. And we haven't been able to do that since 2006. So that was pretty cool. Um, but, uh, but they were able to, uh, they were able to get Zach Wilson. I think everybody saw that coming, um, able to get the supposed quarterback of the future. And then, uh, we traded with, uh, the Vikings to, uh, move up and we got, uh, an offensive guard out of USC, I believe. Yeah. Elijah Vera Tucker. So yeah. you guys took. Yeah. So that, that's what we did. Pretty hard, hard to complain about getting a quarterback. Everybody knew we were going to do that and then protecting him a little bit. So. Overall, pretty, pretty pleased. And Barnabas, tell us about what your Vikings did in the first round. Well, they, yeah, they only had one pick in the first round and they, yeah, so they swapped, uh, they swapped with the Jets. So they moved back from 14 to 23 and uh, picked up a couple picks in the mid rounds, which I thought was a good move because they, that middle, middle of the first round and the end of the first round, there's not a ton of value difference unless an amazing player drops. Mm -hmm. So strengthening their overall position was good. And then they drafted Christian Derrissaw, who's a left tackle from Virginia tech. And um, I'm assuming he's good. He's a first round offensive tackle. Their offensive line has been a sieve for several <laughs> years now. So I'm absolutely in favor of putting more talent there. And I hope he's a good player. Um, and then I think they have something like four third round picks now. So they should have some flexibility to move around and get other guys they like and make some trades and stuff. So I think days two and three of the draft will be, uh, they'll be active. Yeah. Are you, do you, did you watch the first round last night? Like how, how closely do you watch the NFL draft typically? I actually turned it on. Uh, I was out with my wife and then got home and then turned it on about two picks before the Vikings were supposed to have drafted and then they moved back. So um, I pay pretty close attention just because, as a football fan, nothing happens for the three months leading up to the draft. And so it's just draft speculation, draft scouting, trades. And there's been a lot more trades this year. So by the time the draft comes around, there's just like the, you know, you've cleared the appetizers and you're just ready for the main course. Yeah. Yeah. Since I don't have an NFL team, I, I, I'm more of a college guy. So I tend to track more where my Ohio State uh, guys end up going. And so obviously one of the big stories in the first round was where was Justin Fields going to end up? And um, he ended up with the bears, the bears traded up to get him with the 11th pick. And I know as a Vikings fan, you dislike the bears with a, a measure of intensity. Um, <laughs> Not as much as I dislike the Packers, but that's true. Yes. Yes. Um, so um, I, I, you know, I've told John this, so this is not going to come as a surprise to him. I was relieved the Jets didn't pick him because I'm tired of seeing my Ohio State guys go to the Jets and just be awful because they don't get developed. <laughs> but I'm not sure the Bears are exactly going are, are are exactly known for developing quarterback talent either. So that's true. Um, I don't. I mean, I think they have a decent roster around Fields. So I'm curious to see how he turns out. I, I just did not, I did not understand yeah. why he dropped as far as he did. I couldn't make sense out of it. I mean, the only thing that I can think of, of why he dropped is that the previous several Ohio state quarterbacks who've come mm -hmm. into the league have all been bad. Yeah. Um, you know, of whatever fault of their own. And so you kind of wonder if he's just guilty by association, but then at the same time, there was a stretch back in the early two thousands where the same thing happened with quarterbacks out of, uh, out of Cal or Fresno state, they had the same coach, I think. Mm -hmm. And, uh, 
and they were all bad. And then Aaron Rodgers came into the league and clearly he's not bad. Although apparently he no longer wants to be a Packer, which again, I'm all in favor of. So I would like him to not be a Packer. Uh, (laughs) I think fields is the most talented quarterback. The bears have had probably in my lifetime, you know, they just, they have just, they've just had no good quarterbacks ever. So yeah, I, Hopefully they can develop him as a Vikings fan. I don't want them to be good, but I do want him to succeed. So it's kind of mixed feelings. Understood. Understood. So, well, I I'm sure we could talk sports for the entire time we have, have you Barnabas, but I want to move on and talk uh, about some other things. Let's talk a little bit about your journey into full-time vocational ministry, because that's a relatively recent development in terms of you being on staff at a church. I mean, you, you worked, obviously you've worked in the publishing field with, with Christian publishers, but um, just kind of walk us through post-college into yeah. where you are now and how that, how, how God has sort of taken you on this path to get you where you are. <laughs> yeah, I'd say uh, it, it was surprising to me that I ended up where I am. So um, it, it was, it was a winding road. So I graduated from Wheaton College and got, I actually got into Christian publishing right out of the gates. And so basically for about 15 years, worked in Christian publishing. So Crossway Books, Moody Publishers, and then a few different roles at Lifeway, um, both in the book world and then in some other uh, church resourcing sides of things. But that's so sort of the, the nonprofit Christian publishing, church resourcing was my thing. And for a long time, it worked really well for me because... So growing up as a pastor's kid, I just didn't want to work at a church. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't resentful of the church. I, I've, I've always been part of the church and, and valued it highly and just thought that's not a job I want. I do not want to be a pastor. That sounds terrible. Um, but being able to sort of be the, the reserve guys who are, you know, funneling supplies to the frontline guys felt, mm-hmm. I was like, this is a place God has me. I get to use business skills. I get to work in sales or marketing or development and different things. Um, but then after about, yeah, after about 14 or 15 years, um, I'd been at Lifeway for about five or six years um, and just started to get a sense, a real keen sense of this is coming to an end. Um, and not because anything was going wrong at Lifeway. I, you know, my position was strong. We had a great team. I, I really liked my coworkers. The work we were doing was valuable. There really was no negative check boxes for me um, in terms of the, the kind of the work itself. Just a sense of this isn't for me anymore. And so I just started running through in my mind, you know, what if I switched positions? And I realized, no, I don't, I don't want I don't want any of the other jobs that I could get or whatever promotions might come. It's not the company. I didn't want to switch companies and go work for, to do the same work elsewhere. And, and so I was in this spot for several months where I wasn't, I wasn't miserable. I just was kind of waiting on the Lord to make it clear. And during that time, um, Ray Ortland and TJ Tim. So Ray was the senior pastor and founding pastor of Emmanuel where I serve now. And TJ was at the time, the associate pastor. So next in line to take over when Ray retired, they both approached me and said, we really think you should consider full-time ministry or pastoral ministry. And my immediate reaction to both of them was, no, I don't, I don't think I should. Um, But when Ray Ortland stares you in the face and very solemnly says, I think you need to consider this, there's an element of the Holy Spirit transferred through that gaze. I don't know if those who don't know, Ray has 
Ray has the most intense stare into your soul look of any pastor I've ever met. And so I walked away from that conversation with him kind of, it, it, it had its hooks in me. And so over the course of a few months, we talked further and prayed a lot. And I came back to him and said, I, I think that's, I think this is the right direction. So that would have been spring of 2019. And then it took a few months for the transition to happen. And then so, so late summer, 2019, I joined the staff at Emmanuel overseeing um, our small groups and discipleship groups um, with, uh, with an eye towards and a track towards ordination and pastoral ministry. And that was completed towards the end of 2020. Um, so as of, as of the beginning of this year, um, I was installed as an assistant pastor and so still overseeing small groups, but also help over helping oversee the staff and just kind of general pastoral responsibilities. And, and it's been amazing. I mean, just mm -hmm. phenomenal the way that the Lord has, um, helped me in places where I'm totally inexperienced and showed me ways that he was preparing me for this, that I, I wouldn't have anticipated or I wouldn't have lined up in my own mind as, Oh, that is preparation for pastoral ministry, just personal experiences, trials I've been through my own life in the church, my own life as a pastor's kid. There's, there's so many things that the Lord has sort of baked into my life as preparation that I didn't know were preparation. Hmm. Barbus, were there any like, um, joys that you weren't expecting to find stepping into pastoral ministry? Yeah, it's a handful. I mean, I kind of wake up every day, even now, and there's sort of a pinch myself aspect to this. I mean, I, I know that pastoral ministry brings trials. Mm -hmm. For me, it still feels kind of just an, an undue blessing that I'm here in some senses, because I don't feel like I deserve it. You know, mm -hmm. I didn't work hard for this. You know, some people just strive to get into the pastorate and then they, they arrive. And I, I didn't, I was trying not to get into the pastorate and here I am. Uh, so yeah, some of the joys are making the mental shift from the business world where success is, is numerical always, you know, bottom lines, units sold, the reach of an audience, whatever it is to, um, to success being faithful presence, you know, does, were you available to care for the person who needed care? Mm -hmm. Um, were, were you faithfully preaching God's word? Were you just those kinds of things is a, it's a real shift, but it's been really refreshing too, because it's, I it's more fulfilling to me. Numbers never scratched where I itched, so to speak. They just always seemed kind of like, okay, that happened, whatever. And, and this, you know, Having somebody, when you see somebody helped through a circumstance, whether it's a trial or a spiritual struggle, and they come out or are going through it and, and be, you know, growing in Christ, there's a different sort of depth and richness to that. Um, just on a, on, this is, this is a little bit sort of self-gratifying. At no point in my professional life did I ever feel like I was able to put into play everything I, I was good at. I always felt like work does these things and then I have to find a way to in, you know, write or speak or whatever these things are. Those always existed outside of my full-time calling or full-time vocation and the pastoral ministry folds everything in, you know, it's, there's strategy and planning and, you know, organization and leadership 
and writing and studying and teaching and working with a team and kind of every aspect of vocation that I have loved that I always had to patchwork together. Now I almost feel like I have to say no to some things, you know, I can't add more to my plate. I don't need more opportunities because there's so many amazing things that I get to participate in here. So those, those aspects have, have been, yeah, really surprisingly fulfilling, amazing, and kind of, it's just incredible to kind of see God's hand at work in all of it. Well, there's even more we could talk about there. I want to make sure we get to, uh, get to your books. Um, you have to this point published four books. And so I thought what we do is we just kind of talk briefly about each of them, kind of what prompted you to write on that subject. And so, um, John, why don't you get us started? I think I've got them in the correct chronological order. So if I don't, Barnabas, my apologies, but John, why don't you get us started? Yeah, just, uh, Barnabas, your first book, The Pastor's Kid, mm-hmm. right? Uh, second book, Help My Unbelief. I believe that one's about doubt. It uh, is. Um, and then uh, The Curious Christian and uh, Hoping for Happiness, which just came out in the last year, right? Yeah, Hoping for Happiness came out mid-pandemic because because um, I'm bad at marketing books, apparently. Um, <laughs> it, it was either the best timing or the worst timing for that. I'm not sure which. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about um, how you came to write The Pastor's Kid. Let's let's, yeah. s- let's start there. I mean, um, obviously, uh, I'm guessing many of our listeners know that you are the son of John Piper. And so that, that gives you, in one sense, a sort of unique experience and perspective. And yet, one of the things I appreciate about The Pastor's Kid is that it wasn't so much about being the son of a well-known pastor. It was just being a pastor's kid. So it was applicable across the board, even for people who, you know, might be the, the, the kid of a pastor who pastors a church of, you know, 75 people in the middle of rural Iowa, for example. So what, what prompted you to want to write on the subject? Um, I didn't know I wanted to write on the subject for a long time. So, you know, I, I didn't get into doing any sort of published writing until, my mid twenties, maybe. So I didn't aspire to be a writer. It just sort of was a thing that through some struggles and spiritual development, God brought me to. And so I was actually asked to write two different articles on being a pastor's kid. Um, one, you know, for one was, I think for the gospel coalition and the other one was for maybe Ligonier ministries just two different short articles, a couple, like seven of these, five of these, five things to know here, whatever. And what I discovered in writing them was that, um, it, it kind of cracked the lid open on something that I wasn't entirely aware was there. And it was really hard to write 800 words. I was ready to go with about 8,000. Hmm. And um, it, I don't think they would have been a good 8,000. But so that was my first inclination that I should think about this. Then I started to see the responses to those articles. So this would have been in maybe 2011 or 2012. Um, the responses that came in, via email or comments were just pastor's kids of many different ages, some of whom had walked away from the faith and come back, some of whom were in vocational ministry now, tiny churches, large churches, just expressing resonance with what I had written. And that's when I realized I'm not very, I'm not really unique on the pastor's kid front. You know, my dad is more well known, but I didn't grow up in the public eye any more than another pastor's kid did. Uh, the internet didn't really exist for most of my childhood. So, you know, we were just Pastor John's family and, and realized that's really parallel to 
the child of somebody whose dad or, you know, served at a hundred person Methodist church in rural Indiana or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, so those, those kinds of things helped me go, maybe there's something here. Then I started interacting with other pastors, kids via, via, you know, Twitter and some different, some different uh, platforms and realizing it was like 90% overlap in our experience. And so then I decided to go for it and was really grateful that David C. Cook at the time was the publisher. It, it switched publishers now, but they, they picked it up and saw a, a place for it. And um, yeah, and it, it felt like a big risk at the time, you know, both because it was my first book and because it, it was personal, you know, writing about, I was trying to write on behalf of pastors, kids in general, but it was, it's, it's from my perspective, here are my challenges, here are things that I encountered and I didn't let my parents look at it while I was writing it. You know, people ask like, oh, were your, your parents involved in this? No, 100% not. Um, my dad did write the forward for it. So he read it after it was done. And I think that was hard. I mean, he says in the forward, was this book hard for me to read? Yes, it was. That's the first sentence of the forward. So, um, but also he saw the, the, the process of God's grace in it as well. So that's, that's a lot of words just to kind of say how that one came about. Yeah, and I think that um, that I remember reading the foreword to that and being struck by that. That that um, that must have been at some level challenging for your dad. Um, you know, a, as a professor, I think about my own kids' experience going to the same school that I teach at. It's not the same thing, but there are overlap in terms of you're known mm-hmm. as you know, oh, you're Doctor Harmon's kid or something like right. that. Um, and so there, you know, there, there, are, there are some overlap in terms of pressures, but um, it's, uh, I, I just, it was, I think that was one of those things where that book was a well-timed uh, book and it hit, like you said, it, it hit, it hit a nerve that a lot of people didn't necessarily know existed. And then once you sort of expose that, I can, I can believe how quickly you started to get that feedback in of people's experiences resonating, uh, with your own. Yeah, I think it's been, I've been so profoundly encouraged by the responses to that book. I mean, you, you can write for the purpose of fame or money or whatever. And I, thankfully I didn't hold those delusions. Um, having watched (laughs) my parents write and publish just knowing kind of what's the nature of the, of the beast. So I really wanted to write in a way that would encourage people and hearing from pastors, kids, and then from pastors as parents, saying this book has helped me have conversations with my kids that I wouldn't have otherwise had is it's so encouraging to me that, and it feels, it does feel like uh, a miracle that, you know, I put 30,000 words down and, and they're giving life to somebody else's family. I don't know. God does remarkable things. (laughs) Very true. Very true. Uh, Barbus, the, the other three books uh, all kind of hit on a particular topic, whether it's doubt, mm-hmm. curiosity, happiness. How do you go about picking those? Are those born out of personal experiences or things that you're you're passionate yourself? Um, Help My Unbelief was it it kind of was born out of the Pastor's Kid book because in the Pastor's Kid I write about you know some of the struggles with finding finding a a, a faith of your own and the mm-hmm. questions that arise and how there's not room for questions. And then I realized that's not unique to pastors, kids. That's often just Christians in general are not sure what to do with our questions and our doubts. And so it was kind of born out of that, along with my own, you know, my own story of coming to a place of not being sure what I believed 
and not in a kind of stubborn, cynical or skeptical, shake my fist at God way, as much as just the faith that I claimed to have wasn't genuine. It wasn't, it wasn't life in Christ. And so it's born out of that. Um, and, and then re- it's really not written for skeptics as much as it is for Christians who have questions, who just aren't sure how to, to kind of forge ahead in faith. Um, and, and so it was born out of that. The, the, the book on curiosity, the curious Christian was, was more, um, a matter of, um, looking around and just going, people, people don't engage the world around them. People are not widely interested in stuff. They just sort of meander through life. People, especially Christians, is what I'm thinking of. They just sort of meander through life, not finding wonder in anything, not asking questions about anything. And that includes God. You know, God is boring to most people. And I found that really depressing because the basic premise of, you know, God being infinite implies that we should always have more to discover about him. Mm-hmm. And if God is infinite and he's the creator, it says that there's probably always more to be discovered about his creation and his people and so forth. So that was kind of the, the itch that I was trying to scratch with that one, both in my own life saying, all right, am I, am I growing in this, but also inviting other people into it. So both the spiritual and just sort of a, a lifestyle of be amazed, find things, little things, big things, adventurous things, you know, bookish things, whatever they are to, to ask questions about. Um, and then the book on happiness was, that was, that was pretty deeply personal in the sense that I struggled a lot for a long time with um, guilt over being happy, kind of coming out of an evangelical world where enjoyment was, was risky because it's probably trite or shallow or worldly. Mm-hmm. And then moving to Nashville where it's just a city of chasing dreams, you know, trying to make it big at something. And, you know, a lot of positive thinking entrepreneur types who are just spinning their wheels. And I look at this and I go, neither of these is the answer. Suspicion of happiness or like this manic pursuit. What does God say about what it looks like to really be happy? And meanwhile, I'm, I'm reading Ecclesiastes and, and being just utterly sucked into this grounded reality of like all is vanity, but also drink your wine and eat your bread with gladness and whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. I'm like, these are, there's a lot going on here. So it was, it was trying to kind of distill those ideas down to say, these are great gifts from God. They're also not going to the things that are going to fulfill us, but there's, there is a reality that will fulfill us. So how do we kind of weave all this together? Yeah, that's really good. I, I, I want to ask maybe uh, a question that's from a slightly different angle. Um, as you look at the different things you've written on, um, how has that shaped your own parenting? As, as you're sort of hmm. taking the things that you've learned through your own experiences, through your writing, through research yeah. and stuff like that, with your uh, two daughters, I think 15 and 12, is that right? Yeah, that's okay. right. So uh, how, what are some things you're, you're trying to do to pass on some of that wisdom that you feel like you've gained through experience and scripture right. and, and that sort of thing to hopefully help them maybe avoid some of the mistakes that yeah. maybe you've made or just have a better kind of groundedness in these realities, uh, basically mm-hmm. learning from, from you. Yeah, I, that's, a, that's such a helpful way to frame, to ask and frame the question. 
one of the things I've realized in recent years is that when you write something, if you write honestly about anything, it's essentially a document of accountability. Um, you know, the, it's a, it, there's, it's a bit confessional, you know, these are the things that I believe. Uh, these are the things that I hold to. These are the things that I'm, I'm purporting is true. And, you know, I had the chance to read the audiobooks for mine. And so I'm sitting here reading my own words back to myself and thinking while I'm doing this, it, you know, it, how do I transfer this to my kids? Do I still, you know, am I living up to my own words? And so, um, the, the things that come to mind, especially are obviously now I'm raising pastor's kids. That was not true when I wrote that book. I wrote that as a neutral third party, not neutral, but a, an outsider. I got to speak into something that I was not invested in currently. Now I am. And so am I putting my kids in a position where I'm modeling a personal faith in Jesus and putting no expectations on them outside of this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. I do not care about, you know, your last name doesn't raise the bar. Christ has set the bar to the end, you know, um, that, that type of thing, as well as just having open conversations with them so they can express any frustrations about pressures or expectations or so-and-so made me feel like this because I'm a pastor's kid which is, you know, those are pretty valuable things for a, a pastor's kid to have. From Help My Own Belief, it's an openness to their questions. Um, you know, my kids are, my kids are thinkers, you know, I don't, I don't mean that to brag on them, but like they will, they don't accept trite, pat answers at face value. They'll kind of squint at you and then be like, yeah, but what about this? Okay. That's not a challenge that's an opportunity for them to, to keep progressing in understanding of the truth and of scripture. So if, if I really believe that the Holy spirit has their hearts, I can safely deal with any of their questions because the spirit's going to do his business. My job is to continue to invite them deeper into truth. Um, Were you like that as a kid growing up in, in, a, in, in, in your own home, were you constantly asking those kinds of questions to your dad about, um, well, what about this? And as you were kind of coming to grips with your own faith, I think I was more constantly thinking those questions. Um, I have three older brothers and some of the, a couple of them were more vocal. I, I think I learned probably mostly to my detriment to just go my own way. And so part of the reason I ended up struggling in my faith is because I just sort of kept that stuff in and didn't deal with it. But I had the questions. I've always been a, yeah, but what about guy of, of just about anything? Um, but I didn't pose them to my parents. And a lot of that's because um, I got to the point where I knew the answers before I asked. I didn't, I didn't accept the answers, but like, I, I just, I knew the, the, the theological framework pretty well. I think the last thing that comes to mind in terms of your overall question from both the book on curiosity and happiness is this balance of really enjoying the good things God has given us hmm. while not, you know, not pursuing those as fulfilling. So do we really take pleasure in our food and in our friends and in, you know, those kinds of things just, but then, you know, that was a, that was a momentary gift and we move on and we trust the Lord in, in bigger ways, but that's not the be all and end all of things so that, you know, I want my kids to be, to be really happy and not feel guilty for enjoying themselves, but also to have their eyes turning towards 
you know, ultimate reality in Christ is the fulfilling thing. Excellent. That's really helpful. So John, do you want to talk a little bit about, uh, I mean, maybe giving Barnabas a little backstory here. So our podcast has, has been going on now since January of, of 2020. And one of the inspirations was our, uh, our mutual appreciation for and enjoyment of the happy rant podcast that you (laughs) and Ted Cluck and Ronnie Martin, uh, are a part of. And so, um, Maybe it'd just be interesting for because uh, we've talked about your podcast uh, at least a few times uh, on the on the show, and so um, what? How did you end up on the Happy Rant podcast? Because if I remember correctly, you're not one of the original. Is that correct? Or, or no, I, I I am one of the originals. Ronnie. So technically, of the three guys who are on it now, I'm the only original. The other okay. two came later. Although Ted is there, there's sort of a origin and then like the podcast origin so ted's podcast origin i I can give the whole story in a quick flyover but no i've been there since the beginning for better and worse yeah so um well tell us how it originally started and then how did it take the form that it has now with the three of you right so i guess it would have been in 20 probably 2013 maybe 2014 uh a guy named steven altrogi who i knew through the internet as one does, you know, we'd written on the same websites, interacted on Twitter, uh, kind of come to an understanding of, Oh, we have similar theological sensibilities, similar sense of humor takes on sports, good kind of rapport back and forth. He reached out and said, Hey, we should, we should record some conversations, you know? So thinking like we just pull up, I think we use like Google hangouts or whatever it was at the time and just recorded uh, videos of us, essentially doing a podcast, but not a podcast, which is funny because that totally would have worked if it was 2020 or 2021 (laughs) in 2013, nobody wanted to watch those videos. Um, so we ended up with a tiny base of, uh, faithful listeners or watchers, I should say. And they just, the, the general consensus was this would be better as a podcast. You guys should do this as a podcast. I can't watch these videos while I'm driving in my car and so forth. So we decided to move to a podcast. Steven did all the legwork to figure out what that looked like. I said, I'm just here to, to say words. Um, and he said, I think this would be better if we had a third person. I know a guy named Ted. We should ask him to join. I only knew of Ted Cluck by, uh, by his writing. Um, I knew he'd written for like ESPN's page two. I knew he'd co-authored with Kevin DeYoung on a couple of things, but I hadn't read those books. I was a little bit skeptical because I was like, I don't want some reformed pastory dude coming on here and making this thing boring. Um, turns out Ted is not at all boring. He's hilarious no. and has, you know, wide, wide interests and is super. Yeah, he's just one of the most clever guys I know. Um, so Ted joined when we started as a podcast. So we had the video when it was just me and Steven, Steven then Ted. So Ted's Ted's been there since the beginning of the podcast. Then after about a year and a half or two years, Stephen needed to step back from the podcast as, you know, going through a whole bunch of transitions in life, moving and career change and whatever else. And we invited Ronnie on. Ronnie had been a fill-in a couple of times. And so we had a vague notion of who he was. Ted knew him pretty well. And that's been the podcast ever since. And so I didn't meet Ted in person until at least probably three years into doing the podcast. And then I didn't meet Ronnie until the first time we did a live event. So we recorded a podcast together 
probably for three years with me and Ted, and then a couple years with Ronnie before I met them in person. Uh, because, because the internet is a remarkable place. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. Go ahead, John. Um, I, I'm, I'm just curious, uh, on the podcast, on the happy rant, what do you guys have like a rundown of things that you're going to talk about? Do you, do you have, you know, we, we sent you like a, a, a prep sheet, like, Hey, here's yeah. sort of the outline of things we're going to go through. Um, do you guys do that? Or the impression I get is you guys are just texting one another and like, Hey, these are going to be out of topics and we're just going to riff. Yeah. We, so when Steven was the co-host, he worked really hard on like to get us to prepare and Ted and I didn't do a very good job of that because we didn't care uh, enough. And and so it just, we we always just sort of angled towards, let's just shoot from the hip. And Steven wanted to like put together a program and he did a good job, but, but it just like, there was always a little bit of tension. So when he left, show prep became somewhere between 30 minutes and three hours before the show, there's an exchange of text messages. What do you guys want to talk about today? Oh, what about this? Or I saw this funny tweet or this link, or, hey, did you see what so-and-so said? And that's it, you know, uh, that's, that's the whole thing. So in the only time that has presented a problem is for live shows, because <laughs> you, you kind of have to have some run of show in that. And, uh, and we're not good at that. Yeah. So yeah, the whole, the whole thing is really, and sometimes we don't do any show prep. We get on and we go, well, we determined we're recording right now, but we let's just hit record and see what happens. That's as, that's as far as we get. <laughs> and yeah. And sometimes it works great. And sometimes we get done and we're like, I think that was total trash. I'm not, not really sure. <laughs> well, uh, I, I know we, uh, are, are both big fans as is my wife, who's a regular listener and, uh, she, she very much enjoys it. Um, but, uh, connected with the happy rant is one of your current writing projects. Tell us a little bit about mm -hmm. that. Yeah. So the three of us, Ted, Cluck, Ronnie Martin, and myself are writing a happy rant book. Um, Harvest House Publishers reached out to us and said, hey, what might this look like? And so we basically got to go to them with a proposal of what we what we would like to do. And uh, and they ended up really liking the idea. So we're doing a, I think it's supposed to come out in early 2022. Um, and it's it's basically, it's kind of like what we do on the podcast where we kick off a chapter with a topic and then we just exchange portions and mm -hmm. land it when it seems like we've said, you know, like we're not, we, at the point we're not getting repetitive, you know? And so some of the chapters and let's see, we've got a chapter in there about money, about cool pastors, about uh, Christian manhood. Um, what else do we have in there? Uh, personality tests like the Enneagram and all of that. So, I mean, it's just, yeah. And our goal was to pick chapters that are like, these, these things aren't going anywhere. So this book, <laughs> we don't, we don't want to write about current, uh, you know, current things in the news. Cause by the time this is published, nobody will remember who, you know, Carl Lentz is or whatever. Right. So, um, just trying to, trying to pick those kinds of things. And it has been, it's been the most fun book I've written yet because <laughs> I never know what I'm going to write until I open it up and see what Ronnie or Ted has said before me. Nice. And so then it's, it's a response to that. It's really sure. fun. Did pastors and sneakers make an appearance? Uh, the, uh, the Instagram page. Oh, preachers and sneakers. Yeah. Uh, I don't think they've even been mentioned yet. No, I think, 
Um, I mean, when we talk about cool pastors, they could easily fit in there because it's, I mean, they, they kind of have their own like satirical uh, skewering of that. But uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think they've been mentioned. Okay. Hmm. Are you, uh, are you working on any other writing projects besides that? I'm, uh, I'm in conversations right now. And I think it'll come to fruition here shortly to do a, a small group Bible study on Ecclesiastes. So some of the work that I put into hoping for happiness, so not, not attached to it, but just drawing on some of that in terms of themes of fulfillment, happiness, purpose out of Ecclesiastes. And that would be through Lifeway. Uh, similar to, I did a, I did a, a small group study with them um, on help my unbelief. So these are, you know, that one was, I think, a six-week one. This one would be, I think, the Ecclesiastes one would be eight weeks. So just designed for small groups, whether it's a Bible study or a Sunday school class or whatever, to go through together uh, to just to walk through that. So uh, I haven't started it yet, but I'm in sort of the proposal stage. And if it comes to fruition, I'm, I'm really excited about it. Excellent. Well, in our, uh, in our show notes, we will be sure to put links for each of Barnabas's books and uh, as well... Um, we will put a link to your website. Uh, Barnabas, how can people uh, kind of keep up with what's going on in your life and what you're doing? Tell us a little about how they can kind of keep track of you, whether it's in social media or other venues. Yeah, the uh, the two best ways. I, so I have a website, barnabaspiper.com. That's where our podcast is hosted. I, you know, announcements of new writing projects, books, the occasional article. I'm not really a blogger, so it's not regularly updated, but there's, you can kind of find all the information there. And then I'm probably most active on Twitter, just at Barnabas Piper. And uh, I try not to be an angry tweeter. I try to enjoy <laughs> my interactions with people. And for the most part, I find it to be a really fun platform. So uh, yeah, Twitter at Barnabas Piper. Uh, I think I'm at Barnabas W Piper on Instagram and then BarnabasPiper.com. Those are probably the best ways. Excellent. Excellent. We'll have all that in the show notes for uh, for those who want to to uh, keep track of what's going on with Barnabas. But we are at episode seventy, and we need an athlete for our episode. So, John, go ahead and kind of walk us through who we've got as options. Yeah. So, um, wearing number seventy, we have uh, Rayfield Wright uh, was a was a tackle with the Cowboys uh, in the. Oh my goodness! In the in the late '60s to uh, to the early '80s, there, um, Sam Huff, uh, linebacker with the Giants and the Redskins, early um, '56-'69. Uh, Ernie uh, Stoutner, uh, defensive tackle with the Steelers, again, very early. We're going old this week. I'm telling you, seventy was a was a tough number. Seventy wasn't the easiest number, but I I. I do feel like we've got a good option here. Okay. Okay. The next one, uh, Jim Marshall, uh, defensive end for the Vikings, uh, 60 to 79. Yes. And, um, I, I didn't realize this until I did the, uh, the prep for the show. He was an Ohio state grad. So, um, which so there's your answer. Is that what you're going with? Well, I mean, <laughs> We'll see, but and and for our separate uh, Ohio State representative on the list, uh, Dave Foley was an offensive tackle from '66 to '68 on one of their national championship teams. So, uh, so we we've roped Barnabas into helping us pick our athlete for this episode. Barnabas, do you have a a leaning? I suspect you might. Yeah, I mean the Jim Marshall would be my leaning. 
when yeah, when you said this was episode 70 before, you know, before the names were suggested, I started running through in my mind. I was like, yeah, was it going to be an offensive tackle? Yeah. Or <laughs> defensive lineman from the early days of football. There's just sure. not a lot of 70s out there. Um, but Marshall is also an NFL record holder for most fumbles recovered in his career. So, um, and it, you know, an all-time Vikings great. So he, he gets my vote if, if this is a democracy. Yeah. Well, and he's also, uh, well known for one particular fumble recovery in which he, we don't need to talk about that. (laughs) You know? Yes. He, he famously returned a fumble the wrong direction. And then when he got to the end zone, spiked the football thinking he had scored a touchdown when in fact he had scored a safety for the other team. So um, John, do you have an inclination here? Hey, uh, Jim Marshall sounds great to me. All right. (laughs) Jim, Jim Marshall, it is. Sorry for bringing up a painful Vikings history moment there for you, Barnabas. Most of the memorable Vikings <laughs> moments are painful, so that's, you know, <laughs> not unusual. There you go. Well, it's time for One Thing We Liked. And uh, Barnabas, I think we gave you a heads up on this, so I don't know if you yep. have something, uh, you know, for maybe listeners who are new to the program. Each week, John and I pick just one thing we like this week. It could be a meal. It could be a podcast. It could be a show, a movie, a book, just something that brought us uh, a measure of enjoyment and happiness. And so it's all over the map. Barnabas, what do you got for us with one thing you like this week? So I've known about this band for a while, but didn't really start listening to their music until the last week or so. It's the Marcus King band. So um, I am a fan of, of blues and blues rock and that kind of thing. And so Marcus King is a 25-year-old uh, kind of Stevie Ray Vaughan lookalike, and, but just can absolutely shred on the guitar and has an amazing voice. So the Marcus King band across the board. Uh, but if you want just like a song to listen to, they've got one called Beautiful Stranger. Just go check that out. Yeah, all sorts of all sorts of soul and just amazing guitar. So that's my, my that that's my go to this week. Gotcha, John. What about you? Yeah, uh, there's a guy on Twitter uh, called the Pitching Ninja, um, and he's a he's a great follow. Yes, so uh, good. Um, watching he'll overlay uh, two two guys with uh, or the same guy with two different pitches, and the the ball will break in opposite directions, but it looks exactly the same. It's, it's a wonderful follow. Um, yeah, yeah. And he had uh, up there this week, he had Anthony Rizzo uh, striking out Freddie Freeman. And, uh, and that was pretty awesome. Yeah. I have one recurring thought every time I see his tweets and it is how does anybody ever get a hit? Yes. Cause it all <laughs> looks like wizardry. It's yeah. just insane. Mm-hmm. Doc, how about yourself? So um, this week, my wife, Kate and I managed to get away for a night and a day to, do a little bit of celebrating for our 25th wedding anniversary, which was actually congratulations. Yeah. Uh, it's remarkable. She's put up with me for 25 years, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we, we had originally probably wanted to do a big trip, but, um, you know, with COVID that was not really feasible. So I think we're pushing off the big trip till, uh, for the 26th, but just nice to get away and, uh, and be with her. She, uh, we, we are, in the earliest stages of the empty nest life, which I am a big fan of, I highly recommend. Uh, we love our boys. They're great, but we really like the empty nest life. So, but just remember absence makes the heart grow fonder. So, you know, <laughs> this is a good stage. 
Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So, well, I think, John, we've probably uh, covered our various and sundry topics today, wouldn't you say? I'd say so. Yeah. So, uh, Barnabas, thanks so much for joining us. Um, I really appreciate, uh, you know, what what God is doing through you in terms of your writing ministry. And um, we both really enjoy the Happy Rant podcast with you and uh, and Ted and Ronnie. You've got a great dynamic. Each of you brings your own kind of unique uh, perspective and personality to that show. It's it's not easy necessarily to find three personalities that are that different that mesh that well in that context. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to be on with you guys. And uh, it's I marvel anytime somebody says that the happy rant has, you know, played a significant part of their life because because <laughs> we mostly do it for fun. You know, yeah. we do want to lift people's spirits, but we mostly do it for fun. And so when it has a benefit for others, it, it feels I don't know. feels like a gift to me. I'm grateful for that you guys said that. Excellent. Excellent. Well, uh, we encourage our listeners to to keep track of what's going on with Barnabas through Twitter, through Instagram, through his website. We'll have the the links in the show notes for his books and his uh, ways that you can keep in touch with him. But uh, I think we're ready to call Mission Accomplished, John. I think so. Yeah. Okay. And so until next time, the Lord bless you all real good. Later. Later.